This podcast features adults using adult language, but you know, you got to grow up sometime. Hey everyone, you know what it's time for? Swans Crossing! Let's do this. There's so much to talk about. There is. Um, hold on, though. I gotta roll up my sleeves because I just started having a hot flash, which is great timing. Great timing. Exactly what I want to have going on while I'm recording my podcast is. Well, I think I think that needs to make an end of the podcast. Your, your in the podcast. Welcome to Gotta Grow Up Sometime, a Swans Crossing retrospective. I'm Libby Grant, and I'm perimenopausal. <laughs> I'm Nathan Kessler Jeffrey, and I think most of our listeners probably are too yeah um not to be offensive i hope that's not offensive i just assume everybody in our listening group is about our age i i hope everyone's middle-aged who's listening to this i'm not sure why kids would be listening to this podcast i mean i don't know so 80s and 90s stuff is really hot right now with the kids these days I've noticed. Have you seen any of this stuff on social media? I use Facebook, which I've been told by my marketing associate is for old people. It is for old people. She's 22. My publicist is like trying to convince me to use TikTok. I'm like, I literally can't. Like this messes up my brain. If they still had a function like they did two years ago where I could just set things to default mute and unmute it as I wanted to, I would use TikTok. But I'm like, mm-hmm. you don't understand. I'm autistic. This makes me want to jump out a third story window with with all these like noise assaults coming at me that I can't stop. I'm like, I can't handle this. I can't. I was like, I'll outsource this. I'll make my assistant use TikTok. I'm not doing it though. But seriously, on like Instagram and TikTok and I don't know, probably Discord or whatever else the kids are using these days, there are people who, there are young people who devote their lives to recreating like an 80s, 90s aesthetic to be funny. They do it for the lulls. And listen, it is funny. And some of them are really good at it. They get very precise with their recreations. So I wonder if any of these kids have found Swans Crossing yet. Because it is like, it's the sweet spot for that corny aesthetic, like between the late 80s and the early 90s, where it was really at its peak of awfulness. Yeah. Anyway. Wow. Welcome to season four, everyone. Happy season four. Yeah, I hope you had a great holiday season. Have had a little bit of time to relax, get back into the swing of things in January. I mean, this is coming out in February, right? So, yeah, it, it's February twelfth when when this comes out. Yeah, um, I hope by now Omicron has chilled a little bit. I don't know what the what the pandemic situation is going to be like by now, but we'll see. Here's the thing: I went to I went to New York and Kansas City over the holidays. Both hotbeds for Omicron. If I got it, which is entirely possible, I have had zero symptoms. Thank you, Moderna, double-vaxxed and boosted. That's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. I'm still, meanwhile, waiting, as we record this in early January, still waiting for the CDC to tell me whether I am still considered vaccinated or not. Because I got Johnson & Johnson and no one knows. Why can't you just go get a Moderna shot? 
Because they have a freaking database. Like, they'll look you, they take your ID, they look you up, and then they'll be like, you already have the vaccine. I'm like, do I, though? Do I? Actually, though, but in a few days, as long as it doesn't snow again, uh, and as long as the ferry dock still works, which we had a problem with recently, I am going to go over to Anacortis and just lie and tell them I forgot my ID and just see if they'll just give me a Moderna. I don't know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Uh, hey, Swannies. This is Libby from Three Weeks Later cutting into this podcast episode to give you a little update on my vaccine situation. I did go to the mainland and lied and said I had never been vaccinated before, and I got my Moderna. So if you are in my boat and the CDC still hasn't told you what to expect with your J&J, just go to a pharmacy and tell them you've never been vaccinated. Do it, because don't get, don't get the COVID, please. We care about you guys. All right, back to the show. Bye. <laughs> So we watched episode 31, which kicks off season four for our podcast. And uh, this is one of the episodes where a lot of interesting action starts to starts to take place. And also, I'm especially excited to record this podcast because I forgot that I was supposed to watch the show uh, last night to prepare for this recording. And I smoked a big old joint. And then I was like, oh, shit, I got to watch Swan's Crossing and take notes. So I took all my notes very high. I don't know how this is going to turn out. Would you say that Swan's Crossing is, like, the best way to watch it is high? I mean, I feel that way. That's how I got my start with Swan's Crossing. I would, like, have an edible and just watch, like, I don't know, 15, 20 episodes all at once and just lose my mind over <laughs> how, how absurd I, the entire premise was. <laughs> I cannot understand how you've watched more than one episode of this in a row, ever. I cannot, like, 20 minutes is the max I can do. Do you have my predictions from last time? Because I want to talk about the thumbnail, and I can't until we talk about my predictions. I do. Here are your predictions from the end of season three. You thought nothing would happen with the Baldies or the FBI guys, and it would be left to dangle for a really long time. You thought, eh. yeah, did not happen. You thought we would be back to Mila and Owen finally working and it would be a Mila, Owen, and Sandy heavy episode. I would say that's more or less correct. Yeah. Heavy on the Sandy. And uh, Mila and Owen were definitely in it and they were doing music things kind of. You, you figured Garrett would not give the birth certificate to anyone. He and Sydney would talk about the certificate some more in this episode. That, that I have to say that's correct. Yep. You said there would be no politics at all. That was not correct. There was a little bit of political stuff. Yes, gosh, a hint. You thought nothing would happen with Katie, but a little bit more of JT and Neil shredding documents. Um, I guess not really. Not, no. That's a no. Uh, although nothing happened with Katie, but the JT and Neil stuff, not not quite in the, the spirit of the JT and Neil action we actually got. And you thought nothing would happen with the Baldy hiding outside of Glory's window, but if something were to happen, it would be shot in darkness. Uh, it would be one shot in darkness of a Baldy crawling up the lattice into Glory's room, sneaking across the darkened room and taking the poetry book off her nightstand. And then the guys would really freak out because the UB2B formula was gone. Sadly, that did not happen. No. Hey, I'm really, I'm really excited about, uh, about what happens with the Baldies in a, in a way that we're going to talk about it. It's very <laughs> creepy and There's I don't like it. so much to talk about in this episode. <laughs> Let's talk about that thumbnail because on the shoutfactory.tv thumbnail for episode 31, holy shit, so much going on in this thumbnail. Five characters packed into this tiny frame. The setting, a table at Swan's Cafe. <laughs> and really what I wrote is, 
Nancy is in the foreground looking away from the camera towards the jukebox, where Owen speaks with a badass-looking figure in all black. Mila leans over, speaking to Nancy, while Garrett, in a white banded collar shirt that I think I used to own, gazes disinterestedly off-camera left. My assumption from this thumbnail was that Mila was explaining to Nancy why the black-clothed figure behind her is some kind of rock star. And cool doggy, I'm excited to talk about this. Yes, yes, yes indeed. But first, we open on disconcerting silence, no music of any kind. The camera arcs deliciously around Garrett, who's looking through a hole in the wall at Sydney, who's staring back at him. I am reading directly from the notes I wrote while I was high. Camera arcs deliciously around Garrett. Not words I'm proud of having written. Sydney is gazing through the hole at Garrett, her face warmly lit in the twilight. And I suddenly thought to myself, did they base this whole relationship on the mechanical scene in Midsummer Night's Dream? <laughs> like, is, is this the, oh, wall, oh, wall, oh, sweet, oh, lovely wall scene? In this same interlude, it doth befall that I, one snout by name, present a wall. Exactly. Garrett says he came to see if she's changed, which he, he says she has. She showed up. She wouldn't have done that before. And I was like, what are you talking about? This is literally where they used to meet. You dinged it. Yes, and also, I went off into a tangent in my notes. I'm just going to read you the text from it because it is intriguing. Question. Has Garrett just been hanging out beside the wall all day, waiting for some faint signal that will alert him to Sydney's presence on the other side? He's had that Fabian shade up for at least a full day, if not several. How do they decide exactly what time to meet? Is it as soon as the Fabian shade is sighted? If so, did Garrett spend at least a solid day putting a shade up for a few minutes, running out to the wall to check for Sydney, running back and taking it down again? There are certain chronological inconsistencies with the Fabian shade that are challenging my ability to fully enter into this fictional world. You should always watch this show and take notes, high. And Garrett kind of continues to try to needle her, and he refers to the Meryl opponent, and for a moment, I actually thought that Meryl Streep was in this show, and then I got a little sad (laughs) because she's not and never has been. Because the way that everyone in this show pronounces mayoral is very strange. It is very, very strange to our West Coast ears. Meryl. It's just like... It's outside my comprehension. Every time someone says it, it takes me out and I'm like, wait, what? Anyway, Garrett seems to think that Mayor Muffy is about to get very distracted since uh, it's going to be a lot of work switching daughters in the middle of the election. <laughs> this does seem to panic Sydney a little bit, which and she thinks that Garrett has told his dad, which he says he hasn't because he is waiting for Sydney to believe him so that they can work out a deal. Yeah, I kind of love that that is part of Garrett's plan. Like, he's like, I'm gonna torture you until I break you down and you believe that this crazy story is true and then I'm gonna turn it against you. Like, it is admirably evil. Yeah, I mean, there there are several contestants for Psychopath of the Week this week uh, and it all starts right here, folks. Oh, for sure. He's swinging in his hammock in his darkened room, which I'm very confused about because uh, what is happening outside his bedroom window? It looks like broad sunlight. It is a, a, a very odd lighting situation. It's pitch dark inside his room, and yet bright as the, the glistening dawn outside. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. But it doesn't matter, because instantly we cut to Glory sleeping in her bed. But then the camera pans back to show that it's looking through her bedroom window, which makes me feel distinctly uncomfortable. 
POV of adult peering through a window at a sleeping child is not a POV I enjoy being in. No. And then the baldy comes sort of like out from behind a bush or a tree or something, looking in the window. Garrett seems to be whistling a tune coming back to the house, which startles the baldy. And then Garrett doesn't seem to notice him at all. Uh, it's very... The, the placement of where these shots are is very problematic in terms of understanding what's going on. But uh, after Garrett passes, the baldy creeps out and after taking another leer into Glory's window, turns to the side and says, yes. It's so creepy. So, so Garrett, as you noted, walks up whistling. He stops, looks up to the second floor at Glory's open bedroom window and goes, yeah. And then he walks away, and then the baldy creeps out, and like you said, like the creepiest yes imaginable delivers, and I feel like I'm watching an Ingmar Bergman film. Like, what is going on? <laughs> I cannot follow it. Have we discussed, the baldies are white dudes playing purportedly Middle Eastern men, yes? No, no, they're not supposed to be Middle Eastern, they're supposed to be Eastern European. Oh, well, okay. But for some reason, sometimes they wear turbans. I don't know why. I think because it was 1992 yeah. and that was how you showed that people were quote unquote foreign. <laughs> Speaking of 1992, my notes say, thank you, 1992 Lord. We get the theme song complete with the sequence where Sydney and Garrett almost kiss and the rocket explodes. Hallelujah. <laughs> it is the shortened version of the theme song, which made me go, oh, this must be an action packed episode. And indeed it was. Uh, when we come back, we are in Mila's bedroom, where the Countess is on her shell phone, which apparently is a portable phone, unless she recently had a third novelty telephone installed in her daughter's bedroom. I just, you said it so quickly, I think it is important to note that we, she did say shell phone, not <laughs> cell phone. Yes, and uh, Mila comes out of the elevator wearing her bathrobe. I, do you, can you figure out... Where Mila was supposed to have come from? This whole scene is very confusing to me. Why is the Countess in Mila's bedroom having a conversation on the phone about business stuff? I, my only guess, since there is a bathroom off of Mila's room, is that Mila wore her bathroom downstairs to have breakfast. Okay, that makes sense, because I also thought maybe she went swimming like there's a pool at the house, but, like, she's not a good swimmer still. You know, she's still trying to get swimming lessons lessons down. So why yeah. would she go swimming on her own? So I was, I was very confused and probably thinking far too hard about it. Maybe she was entertaining Billy. <laughs> Don't say his name. Mila asks her mom, uh, hey, were you talking about me? Because she sort of walked in on the tail end of this phone conversation where the Countess was talking about how all the details are in place and everything will go off exactly as planned. And the Countess sort of laughs and says, oh no, I have my own interests. I was organizing a benefit at the club. It should be noted that the way that you hang up a shell phone is by setting it down. That's the way you hang up all the phones in this show. <laughs> Particularly in the Resnowski house. So she's organizing a benefit at the club. It's for NUPSI, New Branch Preservation Society of America International. She's just made it up. Yes, and Mila sort of misunderstands what she said, and she thinks she's talking about banks where you do business in the nude, nudie banks. 
I would be all for you can't rob that bank because where are you going to hide the money? No clothes, no trench coat. It's a perfect, it's perfect. Uh, uh, it solves all of our security problems. It creates a lot of other problems, though, <laughs> uh, Libby. Yeah. Do I want human hair in my money? No, thank you. We shed a lot more than people realize because it all sheds in our clothes. <laughs> the Countess claims that Newbrank is a type of snail and has a plan to get Captain Walker, quote, out of his shell. Immediately cut to Captain Walker and Callie gazing into the aquarium on the sub. The captain is waxing rhapsodic as Callie looks on extremely bored and is cursing Valera the Countess uh, because she has picked the one thing he can't refuse, a benefit for his precious nudibank. He, he actually describes it as his downfall. So he has to go to this benefit, and he knows the Countess is going to try to seduce him. Callie thinks it's a great idea. She's like, great, you're going to get out and be around other people? Fantastic. And then she asks if anyone called on the phone, but it was only the Countess. And the captain launches into a tirade about how the Countess doesn't know when to cease and desist. She keeps calling and banging and calling and banging. I... Love this section. It is so funny to me. There's a point at which he says, last time she banged for 10 minutes before she finally went away. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, the banging. Number two, has Captain Walker not left the sub since they got back to Swan's Crossing? We've never seen him off of the sub. Apparently not. Is he an agoraphobic? That's possible. A seafaring agoraphobic? Yeah. I'm so curious as to, like, what is happening off camera with the captain at all times, other than the rhyme of the ancient mariner that I'm never curious about and could live without ever hearing again. Callie gets a little upset because she thought maybe the person who was banging for 10 minutes was Jimmy instead of the countess. And the captain tries to comfort her and says he does understand what she's going through, although he would rather ride a raft through a hurricane than fall in love again. I was wondering if that was Callie's twin's mom. Who really, like, broke <laughs> yes, Callie's evil yeah. twin from Shanghai oh, or wherever she's from. This, this whole scene, it should be noted, happens while someone is actively banging on the hatch of the submarine. There is active knocking happening on the door of their home as they're talking about losing love and and falling in love and all this other stuff. Yeah, and it's a long dialogue they have, too, while someone just goes on pounding on their metallic jar they live inside of. That would drive me insane. Uh, But finally, Callie decides she's going to find out who's knocking after all, so they call for the person to come in. A pair of boys' sneakers come down the ladder, but before we see who it is, we cut to the Rutledge Mansion, where Sydney is rifling through old books while Ralph goes around doing butler things behind her. I think she is actively stacking the books that she wants in Ralph's arms as she goes. Like, she's like, hold this book, Ralph. Now hold this book. I suppose so, and it has the feel of when a director tells you on stage to, like, find a reason to be in that scene, right? It's just, it's so, like, busy work. Like, okay, first of all, why are there just books scattered all around the mansion on every random surface? Like, can these people not afford a a shelf? You'd think they would pack up the books and put them somewhere. Maybe they learned their lesson from the town records. I don't know. (laughs) While the camera is still on Ralph and Sydney. No establishing shot whatsoever. Sandy is suddenly there and talking from off camera. It is jarring. 
we all we see is that Sydney stops and stares in horror while the camera slow zooms in on what I think is the longest Sydney stare of all time. And we hear Sandy say, I'm not sure if you're going to like it. And then what do we see, Nathan? Sydney Sydney says, What did you do? And the camera turns and we see that Sandy has, quote, peroxided her hair. It looks like Nancy hair. <laughs> It is the color of macaroni and cheese. It is profoundly orange. (laughs) Apparently, Sandy was trying to copy Mila and dyed it herself. And Ralph says, it really brightens up the room. (laughs) Sydney's like, yeah, you could read by that light. And and Sydney acts like a general total bitch about it. Like, she keeps trying to get Sandy to cover her hair with a scarf and everything. Sandy finally can't take it anymore, storms off in absolute tears because Sydney's always so critical of her. What's What Sandy says as she's running out is that no matter what she does, Sydney never likes it. And I was suddenly like, wait a second, is Sandy gay for Sydney? Is this a, uh, is this a sexual chemistry that we have somehow not picked up on? Maybe you're right. <gasps> I mean, the JT Neal dynamic is clear, but maybe Sandy is in love with Sydney. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah, there may be there may be something more going on there. Oh, the closeted uh, bisexual youth of 1992. It breaks my heart. Sydney comments how touchy Sandy is, and Ralph notes that Sydney's mom was just like that at Sydney's age. Uh, and then we get another big wide-eyed reaction from Sarah Michelle Geller and wonderful terror synth music. <laughs> I love Sydney's horrified takes to camera so much. I mean, obviously I made the compilation video out of my favorites, but like, I just, every time one of them happens, I'm like, yay, (laughs) there it is. I would love a video, uh, Libby, that is just Sydney reacting to to the moments where she discovers similarities between Sandy and her mom. Oh, that's a good idea. I'll have to work on that one next. All of those, all of those moments were during the birth certificate debacle of Sydney going, really? We cut to Glory's room. All right. Where she gives the mother of all hair flips with her incredible hair and answers the ringing phone. It's JT. He is inviting Glory to breakfast at Swan's. Uh, a, a rare romantic gesture from our uh, ingenue. Garrett's kind of lurking in the background of, of uh, Glory's bedroom. He's kind of looking up at the Fabian shade, but not really doing anything with it. So I don't know why he's there, I guess, because the script needs him to be. And Garrett remarks that having JT as a boyfriend is a zero on a scale of one to ten. But then he does admit that not having a girlfriend at all, which is his current situation, is below a zero. She gets pretty mad, brushes her hair angrily, and Garrett goes on to say, you know, I've been thinking, when I get a girl, I'm going to treat her right. And Glory understandably says, you are? (laughs) This is really like Glory's episode. Glory has some truly fantastic moments in it. Garrett comments that eventually, if you hit him over the head enough, you'll knock some sense into him. And he says he's come to realize that it doesn't matter who's on top. The relationship is the only thing that matters. Garrett, once you're in your college years, you might end up refining those thoughts about it not mattering who's on top. Just saying. hey Glory seems to think that's very mature. She asks which girl he's talking about. He won't say. And she heads off to meet JT and get some blueberry pancakes. 
I have to I have to interrupt because at this point in my notes it says, "Oh God, I am so hungry right now. I want blueberry pancakes. I will kill for blueberry pancakes." <laughs> I had the munchies real bad while this episode was going on. What What do you have in your notes? happens next because i wrote something that i'm not sure actually happened and i want to see if it lines up with your reality okay garrett looks at himself in the mirror and urges himself to never die okay i'm so glad that that really happened because i did not remember that from any time i'd previously watched the show and i was like libby you're high right now. This might not really be what you think it is, but I wrote it down anyway, and I'm glad to know it did actually happen. Here's the funny thing. The last thing Glory says before leaving is, I love blueberry pancakes. And as Garrett turns to the mirror, I was thinking this is an obvious setup for his catchphrase. (laughs) So I love blueberry pancakes. Turn, look at the mirror. Ooh, I love myself. Instead, bam, right out of left field with Don't You Ever Die. What? What is happening? Is this his new catchphrase? He's test driving a new catchphrase. It's like like in high school when your friend shows up and tells you to start calling him by some nickname that they chose for themselves. And you're like, no, that's not the way this works. Right. Glory shows up in the room. Excuse me. Sandy. I don't know who these people are. (laughs) Sandy, the one with the bright orange hair, shows up in the room looking for Glory, who has literally just left and is not out the house yet. Sandy would definitely have seen her on the way into the house. Also, does no one knock? (laughs) I mean, someone knocks on the sub. Sandy has a scarf tied around her hair. Garrett asks her what she did, and he's like, just about to start making fun of her. But the moment Sandy mentions that Sydney was being really critical too... Garrett changes his tune. Complete 180, says he loves it. She seems shocked by how much she likes it, which makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Puts an arm around her shoulder and tells her she's the luckiest woman around because uh, he's got to tell her something. And then we cut away from this to the booth porch. Would you please describe what happens on the porch? Yes. Glory comes out of the front door. She smiles to herself. She applies what I can only imagine is strawberry-flavored lip smackers, and then she walks off beaming for her date with JT while a baldy watches from the bushes. It is so creepy. Yeah, I. it is so gross to just see over and over again a grown-ass man just lurking inside bushes, spying on a 13-year-old girl and following her around. It is very unsettling. I'm a little bit of two minds as to what's more unsettling. Barrick's completely inappropriate relationship with all of the young women of Swans Crossing or this one dude lurking in the bushes. They're both very terrible. Yeah, and uh, I wish just those two were the only inappropriate adult-to-child interactions this show was going to have. But unfortunately, we're just getting started. Oh my gosh, Libby. Remember what I told you before. No child actually ends up in, in, well, I shouldn't put it that way. No child ends up being sex trafficked. Okay. We're back at the sub. It's Saja who has come down. He, he apologized for disturbing their control, tranquility. And Captain Walker and he bow to each other. And Captain the captain acknowledges Saja as a young teacher, one with the light in his eyes. He says, 
my sub is your sub, and walks out of the room. These two people have never met before, and I started thinking, maybe this is the reason Swan's Crossing is the only place left. The captain meets someone with, quote, the light in their eyes. He's just like, take all my things. Captain Walker kind of leaves. He goes into a different compartment in the sub. Saja watches him go and says, that is a cool guy. No, he's not, Saja. He's not. He's a recluse. Saja's all blown away by how rad the sub is, and he almost breaks the periscope. Kelly asks why he is there. And he says he came over because he wanted to talk to her because he's been thinking about why she said the night before that Neil was lucky to be alive. And then we get the psycho (laughs) music and cut back to Sandy, who is in full high-pitched, like, squealy Sandy mode, wondering why Sydney would be jealous of her. And Garrett is explaining that Sydney has talent. And Sydney, excuse me, Sandy has talent, and Sydney is only talented at making trouble. I mean, that that is kind of true. But yeah, so apparently the thing Garrett had to tell her was that Sydney is jealous of her. Like, it's it, it sets it up so that you think he's about to tell her about the birth certificate. But no, what he told her is, Sydney is jealous of you. And Sandy is like literally shrieking in disbelief over the very idea that Sidney Rutledge would be jealous of her in any way. And he claims that Sandy looks more like Muffy than Sidney does, uh, which seems to make a bit of headway with Sandy. So Garrett asks her to come get breakfast with him at Swan's. (laughs) Sandy says, you're taking me out to breakfast? Yeah, like she can't believe this shit that Garrett would want to go out with her, right? Right. He says only if she doesn't wear the scarf. So outside of Swans, we see Glory approaching the restaurant. She hears something and looks around like she thinks she's being followed, but there's nothing there. But then, just as she's about to go into the restaurant, a hand reaches out and grabs her. Ah! But it's Jimmy. And he asks if she's meeting... The, he expl- She explains that she's feeling like someone's been following her. And Jimmy says, well, it was me. I've, I've been looking for you to find out if you're meeting the girls this afternoon. He says he needs some help with the revolving concert stage. Glory recommends that JT help, but Jimmy says he'll probably launch something into space before fixing a simple piston system. Which, <laughs> while true, I don't know if you've ever worked on a revolving stage, Libby, but there are not really pistons involved. I don't know much about mechanics, but uh, I believe you. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a piston-y thing. It's not a piston job. It is, it is very much like an electric motor sort of job. If you have things coming out of the floor, up and down, pistons. Pistons as far as the eye can see. Oh, pistons everywhere. The number one piston production plant in the world. I love the, like, 1930s reporter accent. It's my favorite thing in the world. It's wonderful, isn't it? Everyone will talk like this forever if they want to be taken seriously. Swan's Crossing was all done in style. That would be amazing. Swan's Crossing is the only place left. This just in on the wire. Swan's Crossing, the only place left. So Jimmy kind of hints that he wants Callie to work on the stage with him. And Glory kind of smiles knowingly and says, well, I'll tell Callie you're looking for her. And then they part ways. And we see the baldy again, hiding behind a very slender, very fake tree. That has never been there before. The tree grew overnight so that the baldy could hide behind it. A tree grows in Brooklyn, and a tree grows in Swan's Crossing overnight in the middle of a parking lot. I am 100% confident 
mentioned that the place that the tree is standing is a place that we have previously seen the car parked. Oh, for sure. It is definitely, like, right in front of the door. It's from the camera angle where we have before seen the car pull up right next to the front door. You would definitely notice that stout man dressed all in black clothes standing behind that tiny, freshly sprouted sapling if you were standing ten feet away as Glory is. But of course... She fails to see him because that's what the story calls for. Glory goes into Swans. JT is half finished with his meal, (laughs) but has ordered for Glory a huge stack of pancakes, not just blueberries, lots of fruit, extra butter, extra syrup. Apparently that's just the way she likes it. Oh my God, I could not handle this scene last night when I watched this because I was so hungry and like I was just staring at those pancakes like, oh my God. I gotta find some way to get blueberry pancakes right now, and it's not gonna happen, and it was very sad. Did you did you have to pause the show, go make yourself some food, and then come back? No, but as soon as it was over, I made a huge bowl of oatmeal with just, like, a ton of raisins and pecans in it, and, like, put a bunch of maple syrup on top. It was really good. That does sound delicious. Anyway, Glory says she was reading some of his poems last night, and he gets all flustered and aw shucks, and she says, Your poetry is so... Long pause. Sensitive. <laughs> He apparently wrote some more because he pulls another little notebook out of his back pocket and gives it to her. She goes, you're so, long pause, creative. And as as they're looking at the notebook, uh, on the wall behind them, we can see the shadowy outline of the baldy standing directly outside of Swan's. Are the walls of Swan's Cafe made of paper? I mean, they have to be, because how else are you going to see a profile shadow of someone who's outside the wall? It's such a, I mean... I suppose it, it could be a projection screen, you know? Like, we have made the, we have made the sides of this building out of rear projection screen. I suppose it just, it, you know, this is a seaside town on the eastern seaboard, probably prone to hurricanes at least sometimes. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing you want to build a building out of. No, not really. Fortunately, we cut away from his shadowy outline to Mila, Owen, and a British rocker dude that we're going to discover is named Billy. Though, like most character introductions in Swan's Crossing, we don't find out that his name is Billy for some time. I want to take a brief moment to describe Billy Gunn, his his full name, and which is also the name by which most people refer to him, just Billy Gunn all the time. He is wearing a leather jacket sprinkled here and there tastefully with some silver studs. I want to note that the shoulder pads beneath this jacket are positively massive. It's like he's wearing football armor underneath his jacket. What do they call those shoulder pads that football players wear? I mean, they are, it's like a beam broad. This, this dude, his shoulder span is at least half of his height, and it makes his head look very tiny. Yeah, it really does. And I think, I don't, they're, they're called this in football, but I think in armor lingo, those might be pauldrons. Yes, okay, he has pauldrons on below his leather jacket, maybe to make it difficult for him to be tackled by law enforcement when they come after him for grooming minors. <laughs> this guy is yeah. clearly an adult, he is not a teenager. He's probably like in his mid to late twenties. Uh, he's got some some fancy longish blonde hair and a very fake British accent. Uh, and he 
Mila thanks him for coming to meet with them. And he says anything for Bobby Clark's niece. So this is a contact that Mila made through Uncle Bobby, the record producer. I don't really want to talk about like his like laser focus on Mila for any longer than I absolutely have to. So I'm going to skip over to Owen. Owen, in, in true Owen fashion, cuts in extremely awkwardly, goes on this incredibly long rant about how much he likes Billy's music, specifically a, a song called Gunslinger, which is a fantastic name for a song if your name is Billy Gunn. He gets up from the table, does some air guitar riffs, and the best part of this is the black dude in the back who is just trying to eat his sandwich, but I think is is terrified that that Owen at some point is going to flail into him. Yes, and that's that's Phil, our favorite background extra guy. Remember Phil? We named him in the first season. Don't remember. I did not remember that that was him. I remember Phil. Yeah, that's Phil. Back, hail Phil. And yeah, so um, so Owen, Mila, and Billy are sitting at a table that's up on this little platform that's kind of back by the jukebox. Where in the past we have seen the whole cast do the Swans Crossing line dance. So now there's a table up there. The three of them are sitting up there. Owen is flailing around doing air guitar on the edge of the platform, precariously above Phil's table. And yes, Phil looks like, don't you dare fall into my pancakes, you asshole. <laughs> It's great. <laughs> yeah. He's just trying to have a meal for food. Does Phil live at Swan's Cafe? He might. Maybe he like, maybe he's one of the wait staff. He works there sometimes, but like, it's only him and Jazz. So when he's off, he's still kind of on yeah, the clock. Well, it's not just him and Jazz because the other Swan's Cafe employee is in this episode and Jazz is not. Oh, that's We're right. We're going to get to that because I, I have a whole thing about that establishing shot. Sandy and Garrett enter. Sandy instantly loses her shit. She grabs Garrett to whisper in a thrilled panic that it's Billy Gunn, one of her favorite musicians. And Mila notices Sandy and calls her over. She asks what's up with her hair and Sandy deadpans, I know, (laughs) which cracks me up. (laughs) Mila goes, it's very unusual. (laughs) And she asks, she's like, Owen, what do you Uh, think of Sandy's hair? Owen is still yelling at Billy Gunn about music. It's hilarious. Mila finally butts in and introduces Sandy and Billy. Let's pause here for a moment because, as we've established, I'm musically illiterate. I did a, an actual, like, internet deep dive trying to figure out if if this guy was an actual rocker or if this was just an actor playing a rocker. There are a truly mind-numbingly large number of songs about gunslingers, particularly Western songs. There is a band called The Mods, which has been around for like four decades, but they have a song called The Gunslinger on their album. There's another, there's several uh, more recent songs called The Gunslinger from like the uh, mid-2000s on. This person is fictional. Yes, uh, Billy Gunn (laughs) is in fact a work of fiction. But uh, good for you for doing a dramaturgical deep dive on that. I didn't want to show up to this episode and have you be like, Nathan, you know who Billy Gunn is? (laughs) And and me be like, no. Garrett tries to drag Sandy away, but at first she will not be dragged because she's too into meeting Billy Gunn. But finally he manages to get her away from the group. And uh, once they are relatively alone again with only Owen chattering to his left, Billy turns to Mila, to whom he is sitting much too close, might I add. And says, tell me about yourself. We cut back over to Glory reading JT the poetry that he has just handed her. 
And I did, I did go ahead and write down uh, JT's poetry this episode. <clears throat> as the boomerang returns, as the yo-yo ascends, as the planets return to syzygy, and then we cut immediately back to Billy. I know, what is the point of that cutaway? It's so weird. He, he asks Mila to come to his next concert as his personal guest. Oh no, Mila, do not go. Oh, oh, also, because I wrote in my notes, because I was so high, related, once my sister and I were invited onto the tour bus of Counting Crows, and we were too naive and Mormon to realize what they were suggesting, we just thought they wanted us to have pizza with them. True story. Oh, uh, true story, or are you, are you just going to leave it right there? Okay, well, okay, I'll tell it, I'll make it brief. Uh, my sister and I in, I guess, 1997, okay, so I was 17 and she was 19, we went to a Counting Crows concert in Seattle. We couldn't pay for parking, so we found some weird, hinky place to park our our mom's Toyota 4Runner uh, in the like some weird back alley behind the theater. And um, so after the show, we were walking back to our car through this alley. And uh, as it happened, the tour bus was like right by where our car was parked. And all the dudes from Counting Crows were like hanging out outside their tour bus. And a few fans who had found them were kind of around like getting autographs and stuff. And we sort of paused at the edge of this group and we were like, hey, it was a great show. That was fun. And then the other people kind of dispersed and they, someone, and I, I might've been Adam Durth, I don't know who it was, turned to us and said, hey, we just ordered a bunch of pizzas. Do you girls want to come on, hang out and like eat with us and have a couple of beers on the bus? And we were naive Mormon girls. So we didn't understand what that would have meant. We just knew we had to get home because we promised our mom we'd be back with the car before it got too late. So we were like, oh, we really can't. We got to get going. Um, but thank you. That's really nice of you. And we really like the show. And like, bye. And, and we left. And it wasn't until years later when we were no longer Mormons, either of us, that I think we both sort of realized like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> they were asking us to have sex with them on the tour bus. Yeah. And also, to be clear... Yeah. I do not think that they suspected that I was underage. Uh, I think they thought we were like in our, in our early twenties. So I don't think they were being creepy. I'm not trying to cancel Counting Crows here, but um, it was a it was a funny moment. In in the defense of Mormonism, pizza does just mean pizza in Mormonism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in in our Mormon world, uh, it was just an innocent invitation to have pizza together. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> but it's pretty funny now looking oh back. God. Unfortunately, though, Mila says yes to Billy Gunn's offer, which is not a good idea at all. And Billy says he'll send his plane for her if she's free. And then what happens, Nathan? <laughs> he glances over at Garrett and then says that she's definitely free. Can Garrett hear this conversation? Because he kind of reacts to it. Like, they're a distance away. But he reacts yeah. like he can hear it very clearly. Garrett, he seems upset remembering Mila's rejection and then we get some more of his patented serial killer music and we cut to commercial when we get back we're back on the sub again and Callie's explaining to Saja why she thought Neil's life was in danger. And she's like, well, it has something to do with this project they've been working on. And uh, Callie kind of tries to brush it off as just her overactive imagination. And then Saja puts the vibes on her real heavy. And he's like, I like your overactive imagination. And I was like, Callie, go for Saja, not Jimmy. Saja's way less of a ding dong. 
right? I mean, Sasha is a ding dong, but less of a ding dong than Jimmy. Yeah, Sasha's um, like a like a fun, endearing ding dong. Jimmy's just kind of an infuriating ding dong. Absolutely. So Sasha asks about uh, Callie's feeling about Barrick, and Callie very quickly changes the subject to fishing and asks if he wants to go. He he doesn't like fishing, but he does enjoy staring into the water. <laughs> So she hands him a pole and tells him they're going because it helps her think. And then we cut to the outside of the sub where Jimmy has arrived. And we get our first shot of the hatch at the top of the sub in daylight. And so we actually get the side of the sub and the top of the hatch in the same shot. And my favorite part of this is that Callie and Saja pop out of the hatch at the same time. Like there isn't a ladder underneath them. <laughs> like there's a small platform there for them to stand on together. Who needs consistency in sets? Oh um, yes, they pop up out of the hatch. They don't know that Jimmy is is below listening to their conversation. And Callie says she doesn't want to go back to the tool and die anyway because she's spending too much time there. And she likes spending her time with Saja. And he's a great friend. And Jimmy gets all bummed out That's and slinks thing. away. You're a really great friend, Sanja, is the thing that every love-struck teen wants to hear. Right? I think if you like a brother. <laughs> it is a gray, stormy day right now for no reason, I guess, other than because they're popping out of a sub and nautical things. Fun fact, it is always gray and stormy on the sea. Yeah, 100%. You and I live by the sea, and it is gray and stormy right now, so... I mean, constantly, even on a bright, sunny day, if you go down to the marina, immediately storm clouds gather overhead and the wind is whistling around you. We cut back into the sub. Captain Walker is delighted to have the ship to himself and seems to pick up the rhyme of the ancient mariner again (laughs) when there is a knock. Thinking that it's Sanja, the captain tells him to come in and we see women's heels coming down the ladder staircase thingy. And... (laughs) And the Countess gives a giddy laugh as she enters. Yes. And she's like, because uh, he, he says, come in, young man. And she's like, man, has it been that long, Captain? <laughs> Just like, I love the actor who plays the countess i need to look her up and find out who she is and what else she did with her life because i just i love her energy she's great she's delightful she's <laughs> this. This everywhere cut to the rutledge mansion where sydney is looking through old family photos while pensive piano music plays i note her manicure is on point she is also holding up two photos approximately three by five in size as gauged by her well manicured hand but when we cut to a different camera angle that shows her and Ralph together, she is obviously holding two much larger photos. <laughs> uh, Ralph notes that it's Muffy and Sydney's grandma in the photos. And when Sydney asks Ralph if he notices anything, he says Muffy is a young girl, bore a striking resemblance to Sydney. And we get more concerned stares from Sydney and then cut to Swan. He says she, she bore a striking resemblance to Sandy. You accidentally said Sydney, which was an understandable mistake. But yeah, it's Sandy. So of course, yes, it triggers another Sydney reaction. In this case, she actually collapses onto her pillow, weakened from the ordeal. So we cut, we cut back to Swans. And this is the establishing shot that I want to talk about because it ha- it's a high shot. We get um, the, the table that JT and Glory are at, the, cha- the table that um, Garrett and Sandy are at. 
and we get the spinning gear behind the behind the bar, the one non-jazz employee. There are pastel placemats all around the bar. But the thing that I want to talk about is the tubs with the pump dispensers. <laughs> now, you may have noticed there are there are tubs with pump dispensers behind the bar, uh, like, you know, for ketchup and mustard. There's a red one, a yellow one, and that all seems normal. I might think a green one for relish, but there isn't one there. And when I asked Courtney what the black and blue pumps would be for, she looked at me and immediately said, death and sadness. (laughs) Is Courtney okay? Because this was something that I wanted to talk about with you, like what's in the blue and black pump tubs. Oh my God. But death and sadness. Anyway, Mila comes running down to Sandy. Uh, Owen might be able to play in Billy's band, apparently. And Uncle Bobby, when Sandy asks about the demo tape, Mila tells him that Uncle Bobby loved it. She told Owen this and Owen didn't tell Sandy. Sandy kind of rolls her eyes and she's like, Owen doesn't tell me anything anymore. Oh, Poor Sandy. So Garrett notices that Mila's interested in Owen and Mila says he's not the kind of guy that goes behind someone's back. He's a stand-up kind of guy. To which Garrett responds, too bad no one knows whether he's standing or sitting. Which is a complete shit thing to say, Garrett. And it also made me go, Oh, I was this turd in high school. Oh no, were you? Yeah, yeah, I was. was. We had one had one short friend that never heard the end of it for me, and I feel so bad about that. Oh BJ, if you're out there, I'm sorry. It was a shit thing to do. BJ, if it makes you feel any better, Nathan lost all his hair. (laughs) And as I recall, BJ still has an incredibly gorgeous set of locks. Speaking of gorgeous locks, Billy comes down and says his limo's outside and he's going over to, quote, Allen's <laughs> to hear the little guy play. He has definitely uh, mispronounced Owen's name. And he asks if Mila's so, coming along. She looks at Garrett pointedly and says, yes. And then she goes off with Billy Gunn into the back of his limo where there is no adult supervision. Yep. And then Sandy's like, they didn't even invite me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was such a bummer. But Garrett's like, listen, Swan, you're going to get your turn one of these days. We cut back over to Glory, who is still somehow reading JT's poetry. And they're a table away. Garrett would definitely hear this. So I don't know why he's not actively making fun of JT. Poetry is, my heart will soar at mock speed until the time comes to end its flight. Alpha Centauri, please let it be tonight. She seems to think this is about her? I guess. But she asks, she's like, where do you get your ideas? And he's like, sometimes I just get inspired. And he awkwardly takes her hand. And it's so cute. Like, these two are the most believable actual teenagers in this whole world. Like, they're so dorky and adorably nerdy about how much they want to touch each other and hold each other's hands, but they're afraid to do it. It's just really, really cute. The sax music comes in. How do you think of these things? Sometimes I just get inspired. Really, really inspired. Yeah? It doesn't get any better than this, does it? And I thought to myself, well, maybe not, JT. Maybe it doesn't. (laughs) Maybe not for you, JT, because you keep acting like a total dumbass. 
we cut away from JT and Glory to the Baldy with the turban. And he is on the phone demanding that the person on the other end speak louder because he's having hearing problems when the vandals smashed to the bug that he had his he had his listening headphones in. Yes, and it should be noted for the sake of uh, future foreshadowing that he is trying to stuff cotton balls into his ears. What? Remember that for later. So, uh, thank you. So his hearing is damaged now from the smashing of the bug, but he does ask if quote he got the girl. And then says, find out or else. And we freeze on this man oh. with a painful ear as the credits roll. I think what he says is, what did he give the girl? Oh, I don't know. I, so I can't understand the baldy, it. The baldy is asking the other baldy what JT gave to Glory and telling him to find out. Oh, okay. Maybe. I think. Maybe. I don't anyway, know. Who, who that's, knows? Uh, yeah. <laughs> who is our psychopath of the week? Oh, man. This is hard. The baldy. Definitely. Also, Billy. Yeah. Also, Garrett. Who's your pick? It is all, I mean, it's a lot to choose from. My pick personally is Garrett just because of that first scene where he unveils like a Bond villain his long game to Sydney just to torture her with like knowing that he has an extensive plan and that she's powerless to escape it. So I vote for Garrett. Yeah. Okay. What is our swan count? We had three new fake swans. One new imaginary swan, bringing our running total to four imaginary swans, 24 actual swans, and 85 other swans. Most excellent. And are you ready with your predictions for next week? Okay, so here are my predictions. Uh, The Baldy is going to continue to creep around after Glory getting super duper creepy in her windows. That's terrible. Hate it. Uh, then he's going to try to take the poetry notebooks and is foiled again and again by the Swans Crossing characters doing things like accidentally shutting windows on his hand and some other sort of wily Coyote nonsense. Uh, Sydney is going to finally give in, begging Barrett, Garrett to make a bargain. Sandy is going to spend next episode mooning over losing Owen to Mila. Owen doesn't even realize that Billy is like trying to move in on Mila. Uh, Mo- Mila... Uh, unthinkingly starts to go out with him and then hopefully realizes that he's a total douche. The Countess and Captain Walker have a heated love scene of innuendos, which is only interrupted when Saja and Callie return to the sub. Jimmy returns to the Tool and Die, where Beric is still working on his secret project, and Beric has to distract Jimmy from asking any questions, which isn't too difficult because all Jimmy wants to do is think and talk about Callie. And those are my predictions. Most excellent. I love it. And um, I also say, for the record, your Swans Crossing Christmas special. <laughs> so good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So, I hope all our listeners did. So good. It really brought out my dark side, but what can I say? <laughs> these are hard times. It was <laughs> pandemic years. Thank you, Richard Winsler and Steve Lane, for these for our theme song, Gotta Grow Up Sometime, from the hit show Swans Crossing. And if you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter at Gotta Grow Up Pod and on Instagram at Swans Cross Pod. Until we meet again, friends, may your pump tubs be filled with more than death and sadness. <laughs> yes, yes. Bye.
Don't you ever die.